Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and joining me is my co-host, Bob Rudis. Bob, what's on your mind this week? Jay, Sir Khan is on my mind. And you missed it. And I'm, that's why it's on my mind, because I was, even though I was on vacation for one of those days as a result of being of having to miss it, the, um, the reality was it looked so good just from the tweets and, and maybe your private Twitter stream that I had going on, too, right. that... Um, I'm so bummed that I missed being there. Plus, of all the amazing people that were there, from the speakers to all, all my infosec and risk buddies and everything. So yeah, I am totally bummed. And and you were there live on the scene. And what like and from what I could gather from your tweets and just from the stuff you were telling me outside that, it was amazing. Yeah, I I, I felt bad that you weren't there, but let me go ahead and tell you just how amazing it was. I, I really appreciate you rubbing it in even more, Jay. Thanks. <laughs> No, it was uh, it was really really great, and we we have recordings of the talks. Um, the the place that we held it was just fantastic for video. So everything was recorded except for the opening keynote from Ali Samad Khan. He requested that it not be recorded, um, but it was just I mean everything else just fantastic. Um, the the level of interaction and the facility was so. Um, it was big, and so you had a lot of room and stuff, but it was also cozy. We were just between two rooms for food and stuff like that. So there was a lot of time in between the talks to get up and talk to people and stuff like that. But as a consequence of all that time, it was a long, long day. The first day, um, the doors open at 7 a.m. The opening talk, um, just like a hello, welcome thing, was at 8, I think, starting at 8 or 8.15. And then the last panel on the first day that I helped moderate, that went till uh, I think past six. Wow. And so it was a long, long day. And I mean, it, it didn't seem like anybody was ready to go either. I mean, it was, people were tired, and especially Lisa, because she didn't sleep the night before. Lisa Lee, who helped organize the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to just give, I wasn't there, but everything I've under, has understood it, like she deserves like the giantest shout out. Ever. Yeah, and before every speaker, she would get up and, and tell some story about that speaker. You know, um, just fantastic, just very personable, and just really gave a great great feel to the whole to the whole thing. So, yeah, and um, just a shout out to Bitsite, RiskIO, CXOware, and even though they don't really want to be recognized, well, Ameriprise Financial for um, being such great sponsors and hosters and everything for this. They really they really made made it happen. So. Yeah, fantastic. So we should probably uh, probably bring on our guests, huh? Absolutely. You, would you like to do the honors? Actually, I have their bios here. Oh, you should then. You should read through their bios. Yeah. In all formal-like manner. In this window right here. Um, so we have two guests today, John Langdon and Alex Baker. I'm going to start with you, John. So John, bo both of these two, by the way, are the co-founders of VisiTrend, uh, a company working with visual analytics. We're going to talk quite a bit about that. Um, but John, you've got an extensive background in data science, information visualizations, and machine learning. Um, boy, this is a long bio. I'm trying to figure out how to cut it down. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I mean, 
both you and Alex have a, a strong background in that, right? And both information visualization. Uh, Alex, looks like you're more uh, for software design and research, stuff like that. But please welcome uh, John Lang. We'll bring you on first. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. And Alex Baker, it's great to have you on as well. Yeah, thanks so much. And I want to start out with just an introductory question for both of you. Um, how did you each get interested in information visualization, uh, uh, data science? Uh, how, how did you get interested into the, the passions that you have and what brought you to do VisiTrend? Well, for, for me, it was actually pretty organic. I was working on a PhD uh, in AI, and um, there were, uh, we were on the third floor, and the fourth floor above us was the neuroscience department at Brandeis University. And uh, I would wander up there because they were always doing cool stuff with, you know, human brains and stuff like that. I mean, they didn't have, like, actual brains that they were messing with, but, you know. And the research that they were studying. It, it, it was, yeah, you, were, you were so cool for like 30 seconds there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, they, um, I met uh, a researcher named Astrid Prince. She's at uh, Emory University right now, and um, she's got a great lab there. And she was getting into computational neuroscience, and they were just generating these massive amounts of data. It was big data before that was a term and she was using like high performance clusters like 60 machines just cranking away on these simulations and just cranking out all this data and then they had no way to look at it they wanted to be able to look at it and start to understand um, you know what was in it and that's kind of really what it ignited my my passion for data science and visualization um, you know we did a lot of really sort of abstract visualizations because it was very high dimensional data um, and they weren't sure which dimensions were important, uh, so it got a lot into, you know, dimension reduction and all those sorts of issues um, and, and how to deal with that in visualization. And so I got into multidimensional visualization techniques, some really abstract-looking stuff, but it was really cool what would come out in the, in the data. Um, that's sort of what ignited my passion for, for both fields. That's great. Uh, Alex, how about you? Yeah, and my, my background was pretty similar, actually, in that, uh, you know, I always had visualization as, a, as an interest, and then during my PhD research, ended up with just a ton of data. We had this really detailed analysis of all these hours of software designers, and, uh, you know, decided what are we going to do with all this to make sense of it, and next thing I knew, the actual visualization and the inventing of new visualizations for this, you know, unusual data set really kind of took on, uh, you know, the focus of my interest, and so... Uh, yeah, off from there, and then once I hooked up with John, we were uh, off and running on the visualization front. Wow. And I uh, I, I hear you, because uh, I think Bob and I both have similar stories about having that passion ignited like that. So, well, let's talk about VisiTrend. What, what is VisiTrend, and, and how did this come about? How did you guys come together and say, what a great idea, let's do that? <laughs> Uh, well, so I uh, was working at a company called Charles River Analytics where I got a lot of experience working on various DoD projects, and that's where I got my toes wet with uh, cybersecurity. Um, and, uh, and essentially, I just saw so many opportunities. It was a field, it was a real, really rich field um, with tons of opportunities for applying data science where they, and, and basically they hadn't been applied before. So basically, there was, there was kind of a wide open field. Uh, to play in, and so that's kind of what what drove us in, in that direction. Um, and I, um, 
uh, I had a wonderful experience there, but I wanted to dive deeper into uh, you know the the visual analytics side of things. So I decided to to uh, break out on my own and start a company. Um, and so some of our first contracts were actually with the DoD, with the Air Force, and applying some of the techniques that I worked on um, with the neuroscientists, basically applying some of those techniques um, with cyber data, security data. Um, and, uh, you know, I started growing. I needed help and reached out to Alex. And uh, he was actually in California at the time. And I actually managed to convince him to move from, you know, <laughs> California to Boston. Um, it usually goes the other way around. But... Um, yeah. Well, actually, I, I I would have I would have said like that's horrible if it was like Seattle or or Oregon, but for California, that's actually an improvement. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like it here. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> so um so yeah, and we you know we just saw an opportunity um to apply within that domain. But what I was really passionate about was the combination of um, visualization. Uh, and machine learning. Um, typically, those those two things were really separated in a lot of the tools. There were these really cool tools like um, Tableau, um, Spotfire, uh, where you could really rapidly build visualizations, but the, there just weren't analytics there. Basically, if you, if you had like a CSV file or an Excel file, you could, um, and if as long as it was fairly small, you could build something really quick. Um, but a lot of the time, it didn't scale for production data or real data scenarios, um, and it was sort of the divorced from the actual analytics side and I was always really interested in because the the work that I had done both with the DOD and with the neuroscientists was more about using visualization as a tool not just as reporting of the results at, at the end of all the cool stuff but you know integrated in with the analysis process um, and so you know I, I was very interested in different ways of marrying those those two so basically throw the data in something you start you know use human visual perception to to key off of the patterns because that's what helps motivate the actual questions that you have, um, and then it's sort of this iterative process, and then you start doing the analysis, and then you view the results, and and you sort of converge on a solution. So we were we basically set down to design something similar. the The hope is basically to get something very usable where you can rapidly build a visualization, um, but at the same time you're actually building analytics. So instead of saying, you know, I'm going to map this column to color, you can say, I'm going to map clustering of this data set to color, you know, things like that, basically. And you, you just hit like four questions I had queued up in that little... Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> hey, um, po post the podcast over. Um, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm out of questions now. That was it. Okay. Um, Sorry, but, I ramble a lot. So... Let me just get this out there for you. So Visitrend actually has a a product out there, right? And it's also called Visitrend, or does it have a different name? What you know, we just stuck with the Visitrend name because um, you have friends at work at uh, MathWorks, and everyone calls them MATLAB. So we were just, you know, we'll just stick with Visitrend. Everyone, everything's called Visitrend. So okay. So we actually have a a software as a service site. Um, so you can go there. You can upload data. We do have, um, we worked with a lot of PCAP data initially, so we actually have a lot of supports for PCAP data. So you can upload a PCAP. It does sort of intrusion detection on it, so it'll show you alerts, but there's also other visualizations and analytics that you can run on it uh, pretty rapidly. You can choose from a lot of approaches that we already have in there, kind of have a library of things. Um, but you can also upload uh, just CSV data or, or Excel uh, sheets, so it doesn't have to be cyber data even necessarily. Um, and then from there you can uh, create different visualizations. Um, but we're also um, 
launching a uh, basically turning that whole site into a virtual appliance, sort of a, a, an image that you could install on any machine using something like VirtualBox or VMware. Um, so the idea is that you could throw it up in AWS and and basically connect it to your data store, CDH. You know, we have connectors for Hadoop and all these different things, and and start doing real big data analysis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could uh, a lot of exciting stuff going on. All right. So, I mean, you mentioned some of the other tools out there, right? Tableau and um, a few few of the other ones out there, um, Gephi and things like that. Now. They all have their their benefits and their strengths and weaknesses like that. But uh, and you started to talk about what really sets apart what you guys have created from those, and that's the built-in analytics, right? The ability to map some of the uh, aesthetics and a visualization to not just a, a column of data, but to the output of some other computation. Correct. Right. That's that's a huge differentiator. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So and and you know kind of just with that um, and as I'm curious, I'm I'm not sure if you follow like the Splunk world at all. Like it, it's a reality for for Jay and I, so we we follow it. Like, fortunately or unfortunately, I I try not to say disparaging thing about about people's products, but unfortunately, <laughs> it comes out every so often. So you know, re read into that about Splunk what you will. Um, so they have a bunch of plugin analytics backends. Looks so like in a, as an example, you can actually. Attach R on the back end to Splunk, and you can attach Python on the back end to Splunk, and a bunch of other ones as well too, and have that impact what you're seeing in in their display in their Kibana-like display. Um, I'll, I'll throw that out there too. So I'm wondering if you see that as a potential competitor in this space, or if you see that as something that you know, well, that's great and all. Yours has a much more tailored focus to infosec. And it has an understanding of infosec data that you don't have to actually program in yourself. So therefore, it, it like the visit trend way of doing things is probably a, a slightly different, but perhaps better way of doing things than something like plugging, attaching analytics onto the back end of Splunk. Right, right, exactly. I mean, we're trying to streamline the whole process, and um, and even for Splunk, it's it's actually not necessarily, um, you know, we do have specific supports for cybersecurity, but there there are other data sources you can you can use with it as well. I know people are using it for performance. Um, insights as well, but yeah, I mean that that stuff is really really cool. But there, it's still really high bar for actually being able to um, plug all that stuff together. And then there's still you know figuring out which analytics you want. And so what we were really trying to do is streamline. We we're trying to have something with that had a user experience similar to um, Tableau, but when you're constructing the visualization, you're actually sort of constructing uh, data science at the same time. So trying to lower the bar to that to that extent, um, or or streamline the process, because we imagine there's a you know we hope to have data scientists using it. It's not just for, you know, Joe Schmo to be able to run clustering, but that's you know obviously a positive side effect as well. But we're trying to streamline the whole process. Um, but I think um, I think the way that a lot of those plugins work, though, they have specific ways that they do memory management. Even though you have big data with with Splunk, and and the way that the analytics can actually run on it, and how they have to read data out of it, you actually run into various limitations. Um, so so the one huge architectural difference about what we do is is we don't load the data in. So something like R, what it's going to do is it's going to make a data connection. Um, let me say I love R, and so I'm not casting aspersions at R in any way. Which which is a really good thing on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I I know that I know that well, um, but but um, maybe we should pick another tool. 
<laughs> no, no, it, it's uh, a fair criticism. It is, it, and, uh, and 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 you are. To, it is it is a challenge to make big data work well with R. So we 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 will give you that one for if you have it's a freebie for you. So that's go yeah, that's go basic, basically where I'm going. You know, it is it is awesome. Um, but when you try to do it with production data, you're gonna run into this wall. And and the the thing is, it's not just R. It's 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 pretty much all of these tools, including Tableau and Spotfire, because what they do is they have their own sort of data structures. And uh, it's sort of interesting the marketing that came out of that because now they they'll, they'll start spinning it as in memory analytics, um, but that's really just putting a positive spin on the fact that they have to load all the data that they work on into working memory. Yeah. Um, so we have a very different architectural approach where um, we actually translate the instructions for the analytics. Um, so basically, we push the analytics out to the data instead of pulling the data into the analytics. We push the analytics out to the data, so we kind of translate them for whatever backend they happen to be sitting on. And what that allows us to do is, is it allows us to scale for massive data sets. Um, so we've walked into organizations that have been working, um, I guess I should, probably shouldn't say the specific organizations or tools. So, um, But anyway, working with other tools for months trying to get stuff working, and, and we didn't know when we walked in, um, and these particular folks were working with host-based data. Um, so, so something similar to OSSEC, but it was a commercial product, um, and we connected directly to their data sources, and you know, within 15 minutes, we were showing them visualizations of analysis of terabytes of data, um, and they they were just blown away, and we had no idea they had been struggling with you know these other products for a couple months, um, and that's just you know it it was kind of a, maybe a little serendipity, but it was also just kind of obvious to us when we started out that that was an architectural decision. Um, that we wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, well, one of the questions we haven't, I guess, sent, sent to you, but that that comes to mind as you've been talking, is, you know, were you really surprised at the lack of exploratory data tools for for InfoSec when when you kind of burst into the scene? We t we totally were, and I think I've I've sort of tried to theorize about why that is, and I think it's just that there's such. Uh, a sense of urgency when something goes wrong that people, you know, are going to find the shortest path trying to deal with a vulnerability um, that people haven't. I, I don't know. That's that's my best theory. But yeah, I was totally surprised that there weren't more. Actually, even the applications of more analytics. I mean, there's there's a lot of marketing out there. Uh, you know, let, I've seen products. We you know we've talked with the various companies about partnering. I've seen products advertised as having like behavioral analytics. And what it really amounts to is like this hard-coded rule, you know. I, I just see so much of that stuff. Yeah, it, it blows me away. There's really a lack of, um, I guess the only thing that discourages me a little bit is that the, the hype and the marketing is going to like, you know, we're actually doing data science and, and, and I'm afraid that um, we might get lost in the shuffle for people that are saying that they're doing data science. I don't know. Wait, an infosec vendor saying they're doing something, but not really? <laughs> right. No, you just shattered my entire universe. Yeah, I know. Bob, let me ask you that question. Actually, I mean, like, why? Why do you think that there's that that um, I don't know shallow pool of uh, analytic tools in infosec? Um, actually, because I I think people. So I'll I'll be me, right? So I think a lot of people have been able to make a ton of cash. Um, off of producing just basic stuff that isn't really helpful in the long run that, that lets them actually keep pay, having people pay bundles of cash for things that isn't really helpful in the long run moving forward. It's a pretty 
sick, horrible ecosystem that we've created in InfoSec from a vendor perspective. It's just kind of me. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just calling it out. Right? I would take it a different way. Here, here's my spin. All right. So um, the, the lack of analytic tools, um, just from a usability or end user perspective, it is not seen as contributing to the losses that we've experienced. The losses that we experience are seen as a problem with um, the prevention tools and things like that. It's not people don't see uh, the challenge we have learning from from data as the biggest obstacle in our industry, and so they go for what they know, and that is a technical type of thing. Well, I, and I'm going to caveat my answer, and that is the the malware analysis community has definitely embraced um, the whole. Yeah, that's exploratory true. data analysis stuff a lot more than you know basically the the broader world of you know I guess I would call it like the IDS community or or the NetFlow community or whatever. They they you know, I, in actual fact like the the network side seems to be far more bent on creating giant 3D graphs of things that are pretty than actually finding real stuff inside there than anything else. And and I, I'm not disparaging any particular tool with that. I just think that. You know the I haven't seen one 3D graph on 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 the stuff that you guys have produced on the visitrend.com site, and I think there's a lot more insight in the tree maps and the scatter plots, um, and you know you you do have graphs on there for some things, but they're but but they're not these giant things that you can't navigate through. There there's actually a lot of analysis behind the the things that you have there, and the combining of those two is also a huge challenge, and that's not been done well outside of infosec up until recently either. So I think that's probably a secondary thing. Apart from vendors wanting you to keep being reliant on them for everything going forward, it's that it, it's that whole lack of realization that you know this stuff is possible. It will help things get better as as, as you do more of this basic stuff. And we're gonna have some folks on later this year or early next year who are who are doing some of this kind of things with their own data um, to to be able to do that. So I I it, it's a multi you know I I I was doing the shop jock kind of thing initially, and it is a multifaceted problem. Um, but it it is something where your tool does fill. Uh, a gap that wasn't there, you know, that, that no one was filling before, and I think that's a really interesting analysis from someone came from outside of InfoSec to fill a gap that we had within InfoSec. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to think so, and, and thanks a lot for that. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're trying to build a community too. So um, something I, I didn't mention, there's like we have this nature, um, this sort of feature where you can friend other people on the site. Um, you can also make data sets public and you can share um, the analysis that you do. So we're, we're still definitely smoothing out the edges and, and rounding the corners and everything and, and um, we're at a point where we're looking for as much feedback as possible where people get stuck and um, I mean there's a lot of obvious things to us. It's just we're at the point to where we have to prioritize you know which, which things to work on. Um, but we are trying to build a community of people like sharing analysis and learning from each other, um, and I'm, I'm hoping that's you know useful for kind of spring on the the uh, the you know cutting edge as far as you know. So 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 it's kind of like the Facebook of security data science. Exactly, that's what we want to be. <laughs> Only instead of I don't know if there's 500 million data scientists out there or whatever their user count is now. <laughs> I don't know, maybe five or... <laughs> Within the tool, and I, I don't know if we mentioned it clearly enough, but anybody can go out to your website and sign up for a free account and start using it and playing around with it and seeing how it reacts. Um, and you have some sample data sets out there, including the uh, Honeypot data from, from Bob and Mind site, um, and as well as the Veris community database, the public breaches uh, released in the Veris format, and that's in there as well. 
and you have some sample uh, some sample um, snapshots of that, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a another feature of this site is where once you create some analysis and visualization, if you want to share it with other people, you can make what we call a snapshot, and then that's just a URL that you can, you know, email or post or whatever, and then you can just click on that and go to it. Um, and those snapshots will capture nice things like the context of exactly which things you had selected and, you know, really bring up the details of what you're looking at so people understand, you know, it's not just here's the visualization, but here's specifically what I want you to notice here. And so you can attach a description of, you know, what it is people are looking at as a way to share. So let's let's talk about visualization for a moment. And then something that you guys had said before that we hit record, that you said visualization is in fact a science. It's not just the aesthetics, right? And that's a really great comment. Um, could you talk a bit like the, the science behind visualization and how much research went into what you guys produced? Sure, yeah. So so one thing that, that I see a lot is, um, you know, a lot of people are excited about visualization um, and a lot of, but pretty much everyone, you know, will hop on the bandwagon and then crank out these visualizations and we'll see like a lot of... Um, quote-unquote mistakes and, and I think people don't realize that it's not um, that there are actually metrics and there there's a science behind human factors um, and but basically just, there's been a lot of research done throughout the years um, where you know they'll uh, they'll take a, a known data set um, with known features and and they'll project it into various visualizations and they'll sit a person in front of them and then they'll ask them a battery of questions about that data set and then they'll they'll uh, measure like how fast do the people respond, um, you know, how accurate are the responses? If it's an interactive tool, you know, how many clicks does it take them to do something? Sort of traditional GOMS analysis. Um, if they make mistakes, you know, how many um, actions do they have to take to repair? So there's many many different um, metrics, and there's of course um, human visual perception. And so, you know, we see visualization really as this, you know, we come, we both have PhDs, so we come from a much more scientific approach to visualization. Right. Um, it's not a really, for us, uh, or at least me, it's not about making a pretty picture. As much as I would love for the end result to be a pretty picture, because people love pretty pictures. Yeah, it's always a balance. Yeah, for us it's really about what is optimal in terms of uh, imparting information. Um, and human visual perception is is incredibly powerful, um, and so if you can, so for us the name of the game is how do you project this data into a visualization such that you can exploit human visual processing in order to um, trigger on trends and patterns. Um, so it's it's really about that that projection and figuring out those optimal projections. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've seen tons of products that look really, really pretty, but um, in some cases they can actually um, mislead the user as to what the data is saying, what the information is saying. Um, you know, we saw one recently that, that was pretty astonishing um, with, with what they were showing. And, and so for us, you know, we try to... Uh, we try to get a good balance, like Alex said. Um, you know, we never want to mislead the user. We'll try to make it look pretty if we can. But um, you know, we and certainly in some of the use cases and exercises we've had, a lot of the visualizations that were the most effective were garish. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, they were they were like really because you're you're looking for the really bright, crazy things that jump out at you. Um, 
you know so so we try to try to find that balance but but there's that whole science basically that that people don't know they sort of like yeah i can make a pie graph and they, <laughs> they throw right. throw data into pie graph and yeah go. if if you guys have a chance um i know john you we met with you uh, last rsa but you know just walking around the the vendor floor and looking at you yeah. know the and i'm i'm doing air quotes of dashboards um, right right the, yeah Things that get passed off as visualizing data, um, you know, and like there was, a, I'm thinking of like one dashboard that had a line graph with literally like several hundreds of lines all mixed together like spaghetti, and it was just a line graph, you know. I mean, yeah. there's, there was nothing in there that anybody could walk away with it, and pretty pretty prevalent uh, walking across that show floor. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we see a lot of things like. Um... There, there's a lot of like ba basic fundamentals, um, like uh, humans don't actually see a natural ordering in like a rainbow gradient. So if you if you asked a if you ask someone what what comes first, orange or purple, you know, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to tell you. And so, but we see uh, often that when people are show, like visualizing scalar values, they'll map it into a rainbow color gradient. It's it's a it's a common mistake, you know, and it's not the most egregious one by by any means, but um, so there's a you'll find just tons and tons of things like the, like that and, and various dashboards. So we try um, part of our framework is actually logic that um, goes it sort of ties visual variables um, such as hue, saturation, brightness um, to data variables. So when you load in a data file into our platform, we basically kind of scan it. And we try to come up with the mappings for you know to suggest to you how you would send it to a visualization, um, and and you know that's really exciting for us coming up with that. And we want to work a lot more on that. Um, uh, but but that is there. And I know there's a lot of so there's some really cool stuff out there. I mean I, I love Mini Eyes. Mini Eyes is awesome and uh, it's it's fun to fool fool around with. But every time I create a visualization on there, the default one that pops up is completely wrong. You know, so you have to sit there and uh, Sort of mess around with like what the mapping is, but you know it's really cool. Yeah. So th with visualizations, though, there's always a balance between um, showing the the data visually for the purpose of analysis, trying to come up with what the data is has on the insides, and then the other purpose is to communicate to a, a non-analytic person, right? To communicate the the message or the story or the the reason that someone looked at data in the first place. And there's that balance, right? You you cannot take, for example, a, a network graph or something like that, or a 3D graph, and show it to a decision maker with no experience reading a type of graphic like that. Um, how do you guys strike that balance? Have you have you played around with different ways to sort of simplify or communicate or anything like that? I mean, we we kind of that's a that's actually a really great point, and it's something we've run into because we're we're data science guys, right? So. Right. You know, I have I have a background in machine learning. All the DoD work I did before Visitrin was actually most of it didn't include visualization. It was all AI stuff. Um, so when I walk in and I show a graph, when I plug into their database, especially if they have like terabytes of data, like I show them this giant crazy visualization, yeah. and they're just completely overwhelmed. They're like, "Oh my god, I can't show this to my user." Right. Um, uh, so so I mean, you make a really good point. You know. That's what I like to look at because I like to have an understanding of the data. I want to see the overview and then drill in from there and run various analysis. Um, 
so it's hard for me to break out of that mode, but we totally understand that users, you know, after you figure out what the analysis is and sort of converge on something, you want to communicate it in, a, in an effective way. So we have different visualization methods in the framework that are that are better for that, um, you know, like in basically simple line graphs, um, things like that, or, or what have you. But we kind of leave it to the user, because it's really a, a framework for the user to create whatever visualization they want. So... You know, that's really up to the user how they want to, what they want to end with. Did, right. did you struggle a lot with, um, and I know we talked about this when, when, we, when we talked at RSA briefly and even before that, but so, you know, a, a lot of us, you know, I'm, I'm no longer at an enterprise, so I don't have to, you know, I don't have to worry about data sharing per se like that. But when folks are at an enterprise, it's really scary. I mean, it's a hard, prep, hard proposition to say, push your internal data with internal nodes and all this stuff out to a cloud thing out here. And and I, I know you said you have an appliance mode where you can kind of run it almost anywhere. So that, I think that, that helps some of that gap. But you know, did you struggle with the we're gonna build a web app versus a desktop app and how that was gonna work and how you were gonna deal with all those nuances and, and what made you ultimately settle on on that app model? Yeah, I mean we did struggle with that and, and we actually went back and forth. We started with a desktop app. Um, and, uh, and the reason for that was was actually primarily about performance. Um, and, uh, you know, we were working with the DOD, um, and then we just found, you know, they had a lot of um, requirements and in, in all kinds of hoops to jump through if you actually wanted to install on operational machines. And so at the end of it, um, we started talking to uh, a few enterprises, too, that wanted to uh, partner and whatnot. And for them, they it had to be a web app. Um, so we basically got pushed for, for business reasons into doing a web app. Um, and, and in that case, they it would still be installed on the, the local private network. Um, so they weren't concerned about sending their data to cloud because they weren't. You know, the um, so that's why we have the virtual image. So so we can basically address that issue. You don't you don't have to send your data out if you don't want. Uh, you can just install it locally. Um, but we wanted to put the SaaS site out there too, because we really—I don't know—I uh, I really love this idea of building a community. And I know it's rough at first, but hopefully we'll we'll like really fine tune the site and get a lot of people using it and sharing stuff. And uh, you know, we're—you uh, can sort of pri you can privately share on the site too. So so the hope is also that some communities that might might not want their data public but want to share it amongst each other would be willing to sort of do do that through there as well. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something we wrestled with, and so we have you know options now for whatever people are most comfortable with. Yeah. Have Have you thought about um, so I, on your site and like and there's there's links to their site on in the podcast links. We'll throw one up on the blog probably too. Uh, you know, one of the parts of of our book, and you know, we don't show the book a lot, but one one of the parts of our book uh, that's data driven security on Amazon and and maybe even at your local bookseller if you ask them to bring it in, um, is is that they it, it you know there's a great section I think it's chapter six on on actually like how to do visualizations like what are the components of bar charts, you know like when when do you use them what are the components of line charts etc. And you know a lot of people may think, oh, well, everyone knows that, but the reality is Excel doesn't help you understand when to use those. Um, and I'll, I'll even go here, like Tableau is getting worse at that. It's actually, you know, from everything I've been reading of late, um, it's focusing more on the pretty and, and a lot less on the functional. So, and, and I, I'll get I'll get heck for that from some people, but it's it's not it's not the panacea that it once was, and it's getting a little bit better. 
on, on your site, you've got a great user's guide for, for, for lots of the visualizations that you have. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought about adding in a section on, on well, actually, I've, I've, there's two things about that site. So one, have you thought about adding a section into that user's guide about you know when it's appropriate to use certain types of visualization components? And then secondly, eradicating the pie charts one from, from there. <laughs> yeah. I included that just for you, Bob. I, 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 I had a feeling that, that that was totally there just for me. <laughs> um, so, so we're actually doing a lot of work on that, and we, we absolutely want to add that there. Um, I think there's a lot of education, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised at how persistent it is, but there, you, you're, you hit it right on. And I have to say, guys, I love the book, and I tweeted about it, and um, it, there are a lot of... Let me just say there are a lot of bad books out there, and so I'm glad your book is out there. Um, uh, just to, you know, that's why I said start here when I posted about it. I was like, you know, read this thing, you know, use this one. Um, just because there, there's so much misinformation out there as, as well, and, and you can definitely fall astray. Um, but, yeah, we're definitely going to put some, some stuff on the... Uh, in the user manual, we're actually reorganizing the user manual. We're making a lot of dramatic changes. So, the, so the site's going to be changing pretty dramatically over the next few months. Um, uh, we also just came up with a uh, sort of like a uh, a palette of visualizations, so that when you first upload data, um, one of the things you can do is basically immediately after uploading the data, you can choose from a number of visualizations. Uh, that you want to create, and basically, it's almost like a wizard, if you will, that kind of takes you through that. Like, if you wanted to create, you know, a pie chart, <laughs> but basically, here are the uh, <laughs> here are the variables that would be good for color. Here are the variables that would be good for size. You know, so we actually have logic in there that kind of guides you through that process. Um, it's 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 tough because on the one hand, we don't want to restrict the user. Um, you know. We don't want to take power away from them to decide all these things, but on the other hand, we do want to provide enough support that they don't end up with something completely incomprehensible. And and I guess maybe my last question to, to you guys about your stuff is: Do you, do, you know, so you know you you work you know your tool is designed to work with all kinds of data from smallish data to medium sized data to to that that wonderful term big data that's out there and. <laughs> Does someone need to become like a Hadoop expert, you know, to put you know, to kind of you know maybe pick on the, the the big kid in the room there? Like, do do we need to know all the various layers of how to write Hadoop queries and things like that, or have you come up with a way to simplify getting access to that data and using that data in in models and analyses? Yeah, so so we're actually we've got connectors. It's not wired up to the GUI yet, and that's some work that we're doing. You know, again, it's always about prioritizing what what we do. But we have the ability to connect to remote data sources from our site, so you can actually log into our site. You don't actually have to upload data to our site. You can actually point it at your database wherever it happens to be, connect directly to it, and then go to town. Um, I think for Hadoop, you could actually do that with Hadoop, but you're probably in most cases if you're using Hadoop, you're going to want to get the virtual image and then throw that up on the same network where the Hadoop nodes uh, exist. Um, and we're, we're, so we chose SQL as a kind of a, a, a language for a number of reasons. Um, and, and I know we're not limited to SQL, we support other languages as well. Uh, but one of the reasons is because it's declarative uh, and it's also um, Turing complete, so you can um, 
basically do any programming in it that you'd want. Of course, it'd look really hairy and terrible. But um, you know, in, in most cases, the users won't necessarily need to know what that looks like. Um, but what that buys us is that e you can connect um, basically with Hadoop. You know, you can use things like Hive. You can use Spark. Um, and basically specify all of your analytics still in SQL and still run them on Hadoop in the background. So that was the first way that we were doing those connections. Um, there's, uh, I think Spark has a, a framework called, uh, or a component called Shark, uh, which is like 10 times faster than um, uh, Hive. So you can actually run uh, SQL queries on, on Hadoop infrastructures. But again, we're not limited to SQL. You could, if you wanted to, you could write it um, in like the Spark query language. Um, I, I don't remember what they call it, something like RDD or something like that. Um, but in most cases, if you're, we have GUI supports for constructing the analytics in most cases. So uh, hopefully you can use that. And, and we're building that out now. We're actually redesigning that. Um, but if you know SQL, um, you can just go to town with that. And that can run on these various backends that we're connecting to. So I think we'll probably um, transition into the, uh, the second part here, but I do want to encourage people um, to go out to VisiTrend.com, and you can create a free account, right, and, and play around with the uh, examples you have out there, and as you said, even hook it up to your own data? Yeah, absolutely, and, uh, and we're, like I said, we're really looking for feedback now, so, um, you know, if, if you get stuck, we'd love to hear where you got stuck. And how, um, can, uh, how can people reach out to you? So we actually have a contact page on there, but we also have a support site. Um, if you click on the support link, you can go there and uh, you know send support requests and uh, all kinds of things like that. And and you can friend Jay and I on there too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yep, on the on the new cybersecurity Facebook page. And pay, pay no attention to the, the status of Jay's and I's relationship being it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> And the second half, what we like to do is keep you guys around and uh, run through some uh, recent headlines, blog posts, things like that, and uh, just talk about them. Sounds good. What's going on in the world? So, Bob, what is up first? Jay, um, I think what's up first is your amazing triple header building a DGA classifier in our series of blog, epic blog posts. Epic. Epic. Absolutely. I, I think they're epic. What, what, why, why are they epic? So I think they're epic, and if folks haven't looked at them, just head to our DDSEC site, and, and you'll see them. There are, they're one of the few blog posts we have up there right now, and uh, or the recent ones anyway. And so he kind of takes some stuff from Click Security's data hacking um, the project that we talked with folks last week about, or last podcast about. Yeah. And um, he walks, Jay walks everybody through, first of all, what a DGA is, and DGA stands for Domain Generating Algorithm, and it's for helping find bad sites that kind of generate quickly on the internet, and we're not the only ones doing stuff like this. Um, there's lots of other cool folks and smart folks doing this. Um, but he walks through getting data, prepping data, um, and basically getting, then writing the, the, the model and then using prediction from the model to be able to find these things. And he does that in three different slices so you can get little snippets from each one and not have to have a giant blog post like I tend to write. Um, and I think it does a great job walking folks through and helping folks understand um, that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if you guys 
I've had a chance to look at his 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 posts because you know, you're not our guys, uh, you know, as as in the letter R guys. So you, you you might not look at that. But if you if you so have you guys had a chance to look at his his uh, DJ um, posts at all? Yeah, totally. And I I totally am an R guy. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I saw that. I was going to mention on the features that there's um. I don't know if you've looked into it. But, like, I remember taking a cryptography class in college, and like they had like these letter frequencies and letter pairing frequencies. It reminded me of the n-grams when you were looking at all the different n-grams. Um, I thought that would be a cool uh, way, uh, or maybe another feature that you could use is just use that frequency analysis um, to see if you know basically if there were real words or not. Um, yeah. And I, I did that. So I did n-grams of like one character, which is essentially character frequency. Okay. Okay. Cool. Those were included in there. So, because I thought about that, and I thought about you know just you know because x wouldn't show up nearly as often, uh, right? Normal word as it would in a DGA. Yep. Exactly. Cool yeah. stuff. Yeah. Thanks. The uh, the other one, which is a little interesting to bring up with the guests that we have on, um, and and again, I, I don't, it, and this isn't sort of fair to them because we didn't actually send the links out till very late because I I honestly just got back from vacation 30 minutes before starting the podcast. Um, it brings up a good question. I know where you're going. So go yeah. So 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 this is a um, so the the Jeff Leak from the Leak Group, um, probably best known if you're ever if you're familiar at all with Coursera. Um, you know, Jeff's got some awesome stuff up there, and he produces some really thought-provoking thought blog posts. And the folks that work with him in Leak Group are, are just awesome folks as well. And, and they lean more on the stats side than anything else. But he has a great uh, a link up, and again, all these links will be up in the podcast post about um, data science can't be point and click. Mm. And so that's a little controversial, um, given that you guys, you know, have kind of sort of created a point-and-click interface. <laughs> <laughs> that one on there. Um, but but the reality, so yeah, I think one of his one of his quotes there is right. So the danger with using point-and-click tools, it's very hard to automate the identification of warning signs that seasoned analysts get when they have their hands in the data, like spurious correlations, um, data quality issues, missing confounders, you know, results that are just stupid and silly. Um, and if you're doing it an interactive analysis you know, on your own with your own stuff, you know, it, you and you become a seasoned an, an analyst, it's a little bit easier to kind of do those things. So maybe, you know, rather than start with Jay on this one, you know, so and I didn't pick this one because you guys were on. Like this just happened to be a recent <laughs> right that I really like. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are as how your tool fits in. So how how, how would you differentiate your tool from a point and click automated data science for the masses? You know, and differentiation. You know, so you've got that that spectrum. Then you've got the I'm going to write an R program from scratch, like Jay and I do. Like, where does yours fit on that spectrum from there? And do you disagree with what Jeff says at all in there? Um, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, I think we streamline the process for doing that. Um, but I I wouldn't refer to us as like a point and click uh, data science. I mean, basically, we're trying to use visualization to show you everything that's going on. Okay. So if there are spurious correlations, you know, we we want to show like all the data. So all of that stuff should really come out during the analysis and while you're using our program. Um, we definitely try to provide user supports to lower the bar for doing data science. Um, uh, you know, and we try to make it more intuitive, and we try to marry it more to the visualization. Um, but at the same time. Um, you know, there we have this advanced mode where you can break out and you know, do much more. You know, you, you know, we don't s support our scripting um, yet, uh, but uh, I, I like that word. That's an awesome yeah. word. <laughs> um, but we do. Uh, you know, you can write in SQL and um, 
we've got some pretty hairy stuff. And and some folks that are more advanced that know what they're doing, um, you know, they do they do they break out into the SQL and they they get pretty intense with that. Um, I've been pretty. It's always interesting to see what people do with with the tool um, and and where they go with it. Um, but basically, we're trying to streamline that approach and, and make it more intuitive. But but um, we're trying to get as close to a point and click as you could possibly get. But but I would I would agree with the general sentiment that you can't be completely point and click. At the same time, we're you know we're using visualization because we think it's important not to be a black box. Because what what I think happens with the point and click tools is that it's a complete black box. It's like you know yeah run the 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 special magic thing and tell me where the bad guy is and and then it just lights up somewhere you know we're definitely not that I mean what we're what we're trying to do is show you the visualization of the process itself where do you start what is the data and where do you end up with the analysis yeah and, and Jay and I have like the it's not a, it's not a running bet it's like a running gag bet um, about like what RSA is gonna look like next year um, and my my fear, so I'm really kind of glad, and I might I'm, I'll be bringing this article up a bunch, I think, over the next couple couple, couple months in blog posts. But my fear is that we're going to see a lot of point and click data science, like in, incorrect, not not working. It's just a lie from vendors, like they keep doing. Oh yeah. Um, thing on, on the on the show floor worse the worse than it has been this year and maybe years past because it's they're going to talk about data science and they're going to say they're going to find things and the reality is is they're just selling you more snake oil I've already I've already seen that last last year <laughs> last year as someone was saying they were doing data mining and I uh, I was started asking them about it and, and and they had I don't I don't even why he called it data mining he had this weird indexing scheme for flat files well, it was his data, right? So it's my data, so data mining. Right. <laughs> that was really that was really horrible. That was a stretch. All right, I, I I will transition that to so something that so uh, uh kind of carrying on. And this is again these links were kind of just they happened over the month has nothing to do with anything. It's just that Jay happened to build three blog posts about doing machine learning. You guys are all about machine learning, um, and data school and has a great series of lectures. On uh, in-depth introduction to machine learning in 15 hours, and they're expert videos with slides in a, in a, in a playlist format. Kind of uh, do it at your own pace, so you can like stop and start them whenever you want to. Um, there are there are really neat series of videos for anyone that wants to get up to speed on this stuff. Is that the Coursera? No, actually, it's 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 not. It, it, it's it's actually from Data School. Oh, okay. Yeah. There wasn't a Coursera course though. Um, no, they I, I it may have been a Coursera course at one time. I I don't think so though. And the, the book that they talk about is Trevor Hasty and I can't remember the other guy's name, but the, the book uh, Rob Tib Tibtrani. Yeah, that was that was actually incredibly uh, influential in me. Well, it, so the Elements of Statistical Learning book, which is a phenomenal book that everyone that anyone trying to do anything in this this space should have. Absolutely phenomenal. And I tried to um, I leveraged that heavily working on the, the chapter that we have in the book on machine learning. So that was a huge influence for that. So just uh, and the the videos are really nicely done, um, and the the two professors have a little bit light sense of humor as well. So it's not completely boring and dry. But I mean, you know, it's a it's a, a pretty deep topic. So I mean, and 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 they're like I said, they're chunked out. I think the longest one is like twenty minutes. Yeah. You know, they they range from eight minutes, seven minutes to twenty minutes, and that's it. So you're not taking a huge chunk out of your time to, to go do this, and you don't need to have a textbook with it. I mean, it's great to have the book. Like we love books, but yeah. so um, if you fall asleep midway, you're not going to miss much. You can always just <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Um, so t taking taking a kind of cue from the video side, 
Um, yeah, and yeah, this is just something where I think this would be great for folks to try to do on their own. Um, so this is from School of Data. If you don't, if you don't subscribe to the School of Data blog, they they produce some really interesting. Uh, non, so most everything I look at is not infosec related because there just aren't a whole lot of blogs out there about infosec data science stuff, and all the ones that are, we we've either had on or will have on soon. Um, which means that these two guys on 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 the on the podcast right now should probably have more of a blog about doing data science as well too, uh, or 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 contribute posts to our blog for the data science. Stuff. Absolutely, we we have a blog. There's no post on it yet. Well, then then it's not a blog. There. <laughs> <laughs> so so this the school of data thing has a thing called data playlists, and what they do is they're going to be putting out a thing, a topic that's challenging folks to create. You know, I think two to five minute long one concept videos. For something, so I, the first one is like, so this is an inane one, like why you'd want to format stuff in Excel. I know you have to to make dashboards for people and stuff, which is fine. Um, but the reality is, is like they're going to be doing a whole series of posts on that. But this is a challenge to folks in general. Um, I, I think you get a lot more out of mastering a topic if you have to like at least mini teach on that topic, if not Absolutely. fully teach on that topic. Um, so for your folks, so everyone, everyone listening with coworkers, create a two-minute video, five-minute video on something that you've learned data science-wise. Even if it's something basic as like how to get R working and how to do some basic analyses in R or Python or whatever, um, get that up there and distribute it out there. You'll be better for it. They'll be better for it. You can even get a spot on the data, the School of Data site if you want to as well too. So we'll have that link up there. Um, and, and they actually took their idea from uh, another website called Data Meet. Um, I'll throw that up there as well too. But this is just sharing your knowledge and your expertise with other people, making you better, making them better. That whole community thing like the Visit Trend folks are trying to do on their site. Very cool. Um, also, and this carrying with the theme that the Visit Trend guys um, also brought up, uh, so they have a virtual appliance, and they mentioned a couple of things. So Docker is like all the new cool thing with all the full stack the San Francisco engineers out there right now. Um, and Docker, if you if you're not familiar with Docker, it's a it's a way of creating um, and managing virtual images and you know clusters of virtual images. And I'm I'm not even doing it justice with that little two second introduction there. So you should look up Docker. Um, start playing with Docker. It works on every system. They they've got shims for Windows because you have to kind of do stuff with VirtualBox in a weird way. Mac is sort of half weird. If you got Ubuntu though, it works great out of the box. And if you um, work with DigitalOcean at all, uh, which is where our blog is hosted, uh, they've got they've actually got direct support for Docker images as well too. So you can say, build me a system that looks like this. Five minutes later, you have everything that you possibly need with that system. It's actually I think it's more powerful than the AMIs that are out there. Um, and so there's a uh, Dirk uh, Edelbutel. I I totally probably killed his name but Dirk is the uh, the folk the person one of one of the main people behind the RCPP uh, uh, back end and he's got a lot of stuff in docker because they he uses it and a bunch of other people use it in R for massive testing and there's a link on on, on a site out there about how to actually build build an R studio server in doc in the cloud using docker and if you walk through that it'll help you really figure out how to use docker and the neat thing about that is, is you know, you may not have a 32, you know, gigabyte RAM machine, and you know, this is one of the failings of R, as 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 these guys pointed out. It's pretty much in memory now. With things like dplyr, that's not that's becoming not much of an issue. Is that you can do more of the back end stuff and then pull out the stuff for the the front end stuff if you need to. But this will let you create a very big image to run some very big stuff pretty quickly if you actually follow the instructions well and they're, they're actually not that hard to do and, and I've actually I followed these already and I built the whole RStudio server thing in like five minutes and it was pretty cool so Docker could be a pretty interesting thing to do but the other cool thing about Docker is not just the ability to do that um, there's an, an I'll, I'll, I, the link is I haven't shared the link with these guys yet but there's another link about how um, 
the data science is actually um, causing some issues with reproducibility. And I'm, a, I'm all about reproducible research. Hmm. But tools, and this is one interesting thing about maybe the Visitrends side of the world, which is, you know, they've got things self-contained. They'll deal with the, the back-end idiosyncrasies. So, you know, your, your, your analyses, at least the, you know, the visual analyses that you're doing for exploratory stuff will always work. But if you're doing this stuff and distributing it to other folks, even if you give them a Python notebook or you give them an R, R markdown file, you may not be able to run that in a year because half the packages might not be in CRAN anymore or the stuff may have may not work because you don't have the right versions of things to compile stuff for Python for the stuff on your local system or whatever. Um, it's, it's actually uh, an issue for older data science related stuff and it's going to become even more of an issue for moving forward with Docker. You don't. You can actually completely combine all of those dependencies into one image and share that Docker image with somebody, and not just the actual Markdown file. So they have everything they possibly need. Um, I know the Python community might argue that you know they've got the whole virtual ENV, and now R's got some stuff similar to that with, with Packrat. Um, I think even there, though, you missed that that you you will still run into more compatibility issues than if you could give someone a and preserve a full image for the analytics environment. So Docker is great, not just for running big data in the cloud, but preserving the integrity of your analysis at a local level, too. And take a breath. Oh, stop. <laughs> that was a good rant, though. That was it, good. It, I, I, I'm very passionate about that. I, I think it's one of the cooler things that, that's come out there, and I think applying it to the data science community and, and, and not just you know the cool hipster crowd in San Francisco would be a pretty cool thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us on this uh, episode 10. It was great to have you guys on. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys, and uh, we'll, we hope to have you back in a few months and see how things are going. Sounds good. Great. All right.